My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. As always, I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And today, we're going to talk about billion-dollar companies, unicorns, and who are the people that build them and what makes them different with my guest, Ali Temaseb, who is the author of a new book called Super Founders. Now, Ali is a partner at DCVC, a highly reputable VC firm with over $2 billion under management. He has invested in tons of companies, both in the US and globally, and his work has been featured in the BBC, The Guardian, Forbes, The Telegraph, TechCrunch, and Wired. And in our conversation, you're gonna learn a bunch of stuff. For example, we're gonna look at the data. So this book is all based on data and research that Ali has put together. And we're gonna understand what separates the billion dollar ideas from all the rest of the ideas. And his case on this is insane. 35,000 data points that Ali collected over four years. So he, he gets in deep. He also will debunk myths like the fact that, you know, there's a certain age, whether you're 25 or 45, I've heard both, that makes you more likely to be successful. Guess what? I'm going to give you a little spoiler alert. There is no correlation, according to Ali. And you're also going to have data that's going to help you think about maybe you want to start a business, you know somebody else who wants to start a business, things like whether passion matters, whether you need to have a co-founder, uh, whether you have to be an expert in an industry. And Ali's going to give us his advice on how to make the best pitch possible. Now, for my small ass today, it's a little tiny one, but it means a lot to me. Please consider subscribing to FOMO Sapiens and rating the show on your favorite podcasting app. I promise you, I don't ask it because it does nothing. It actually helps people to discover the show and grow our audience. And then I can just do more and cooler things for you. And now onto the interview. Now, as you know, I always start my interviews by asking the same question, but once in a while, you like to mix it up a little tiny bit. And so I decided to start the conversation with something that's been on my mind when I think about the world of technology and venture capital. And that is that things are a little cray out there. And so I asked Ali to get started, whether or not he thinks we're in a bubble. That's a good question. I think that's, you, you go and read some articles from back in 90, 93. I think I, I was reading that and people have been saying there is a bubble uh, in, in Valley in tech uh, since a very, very long time ago. I think I even read something from 1980-something about uh, home prices in Silicon Valley or, or g the general tech bubble. And now it's, it's kind of broadened in the market. It, it's definitely true. Everybody is very optimistic. And um, there might be, you know, the market may be stale for, for a while. And it might be a bubble, but I'm very, you know, optimistic about this general trend, the ability of, you know, technology to affect, you know, much larger problems in the world and opening up much larger markets. So I think the market is becoming larger and larger. And these companies do have larger market share and market caps, uh, but we might temporarily be in a uh, run, you know, 
very, very optimistic side of the market. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the question slightly differently. Okay, because I agree, I, I, and I lived through the bubble of uh, 2000 2001, right? So I've I've seen it on the other side. So I, I agree, though, that you know technology is expanding. That these companies, you know, it's not like in the old days where it was like these companies didn't even have a way to make money. A lot of these companies are making money or have business models. But I guess I would say, are the valuations disconnected from reality? They are to an extent. They are to the extent that they are expecting a very, very rosy future. And they are expecting a very optimistic uh, future. So they are in that term. But the fact that, you know, I would say that the tech industry has grown so uh, fast and so big, or some of these companies have grown so fast, so big, I don't think that's a bubble. Um, and the fact that there's so many you know, new companies, new venture capital firms, new, new, new startups, I don't think that's a bubble. But, you know, you see it with, with all the SPACs that are happening now and a lot of companies that are going public that should not be public or are not ready to become public. I think th there are elements of a bubble there and, you know, bad things may happen to some extent of these. But I think on the general, just the fact that, you know, there's a lot more companies today and there's a lot bigger companies today, that on its own isn't a sign of a bubble. But there are a lot of low quality companies going public. And there are a lot of low quality companies getting funding. That's that's a sign of a bubble. Yeah, we're, we're thinking. I'm thinking about WeWork right now. Not to pick on you, WeWork, but going public. I don't know about that. Anyway, so Ali, we're going to talk about your new book, Super Founders. And just to start out, you did a ton of research. So what I what really drew my attention to your book is the fact this isn't just somebody who's sort of just like writing their opinions on a page. You did the work. So why don't you tell us about some of the research that went into writing this book? For sure. So I started working on this project uh, over four years ago, back in 2016, 2017. And the origin of that is, you know, I I, I see about a thousand companies per year who come and pitch. And I've seen some of them become massive successes. I am on the board of some of them. And I've seen a lot of them, you know, fail. And a lot of people in the startup ecosystem talk about what leads to success and what does not. And, you know, they, they talk about, you know, you need to be technical. This is the number of co-founders you need to have. You need to start a new market. The there shouldn't be any competition. There's a lot of things people talk about, and it comes from their personal experiences or a couple anecdotes they've seen, or, or to be honest, what they feel makes sense. Anyways, I'm an, you know, my I come from an academic background, so when I hear these people talk about these, I just want to scream. I do not know how these people feel so confidently and talk so confidently about some of these claims without having any data backing them. So I wanted to see what is it that actually differentiates billion-dollar companies, billion-dollar startups from the rest on day one without looking at their gross perspectives or, you know, what their week over or months over gross looked like. Just the fundamentals. What does this idea look like on day one? What the competition, what the team looked like on day one? And if there was anything that separated them. And there's no data on this. There's, you know, there's, there's websites that will tell you how much money some of these companies raised, but that's it. Um, so it took me four years to collect 30,000 data points, uh, 65 data elements per company, anywhere from, you know, who the founders were, their career paths, what they studied, where they worked at, what was their title, 
where the idea come from, how the competition looked like, what the market looked like, what was the defensibility, what was the patent situation, what was the IP situation, what was the branding look like on day one. And, you know, fundraising, how often they fundraise, how frequent they fundraise, who they fundraise from, was it easy, was it hard? I quantified all these things from for these, you know, all the unicorns founded in the past 15 years. And to to have something to compare with, I randomly selected a large selection of companies that did not become billion dollar companies, a randomly selected group, and collected the same data on them. That took me an extra two years. And, you know, then I had 30,000 data points I could compare and contrast all these things. And when I looked at the data, it turns out a lot of these things that people say about what leads to success and what does not are statistically wrong. Like they're not supported by data. Data sometimes says the exact opposite, but most often it tells you this thing does not impact success. But also showed a bunch of things that do, and that's kind of where the recommendations in the book come. And you know, what are the things that you need to pay attention to and you know could lead to your success or a higher probability of success. FOMO. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. All right, we're going to get into those today. Let's start with some of the myths because I like this. What I like about the, the, the entire concept of this book and especially because I wrote a book about part-time entrepreneurship and a lot of people would say to me, you can't be successful if you start on the side. And I found the data that showed it could. So when you look at data, shockingly, I mean, this shouldn't be a shock, but <laughs> sometimes we forget, you might find out that the conventional wisdom is wrong. So let's start out with one of the ones that you hit on and explain this to us and give us an example about the age myth. Yeah. So I think this is one that is cyclical. I think uh, when I read back, it seems like in the 90s or, you know, early 2000s, people paid attention to, you know, you need to be senior, you need to be, you know, you need to have a gray hair. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of focus on, you know, older people are more successful in building companies. Then things like Y Combinator came on and things changed. And now all of a sudden, everybody's looking into, you know, let's go and source from universities. Let's go and look at people who have, you know, interned at Google for the past three months. Or let's go and invest in people who have been, you know, uh, who've been working at Google for the past two years. And all this is a bias towards, you know, I want to invest in 20-something-year-olds, people in their early 20s. And it seems like at different times or even at different industries or different parts of the country, there are different biases. Some people bias older people. Some people bias younger people. Silicon Valley definitely goes toward the younger people. Um, some other places go toward the older people. There was this uh, Harvard Business Review article that came out, I think, two or three years ago that says, you know, 
the successful entrepreneurs are 45 years old. And when I looked at the data, basically the data looks at who got funded and who became uh, successful. So it, it has a baseline and it looks at what succeeded. There is no correlation between age and success. Uh, the founders of these billion-dollar companies were anywhere from 18 years old to 68 years old. Yes, there is a larger number of founders who are 26 or 28 or 30 or 32 or 36 within that range. But that's the same distribution when you look at people who get funded and people who end up building billion-dollar companies. So when you compare these distributions, there's no difference and people of different age can be successful in building billion-dollar companies. What about failure? I'm curious, is there any correlation between failure and age? Um, well, there's no... I, I did not look between failure and age, but when you look at failure and uh, success, there is a correlation. And what the correlation is, and that's actually one of the main points of the book, is the passion towards building. The data shows people who had a bug for building stuff, for selling stuff, for creating stuff, they were a lot more likely to end up and build a billion-dollar company. And by a lot, I mean about 350% more likely um, to start billion-dollar companies. And basically, the data shows if you have built and sold a company for $10 million or more or something in that range, uh, you are a lot more likely to build a billion-dollar company next. And, you know, if you've sold a company for $10 million, in the world of venture capital, it's, it's a massive success on its own, and the founder may, may have made a millions. But in the world of venture capital and in the world of, you know, mega-billion acquisitions, it's, it's, it's almost looked like as a failure. Uh, no venture capital investor would, would get excited about a $10 million exit. Um, it would definitely be, you know, looked at as a failure. But it's these people... Who would, uh, who are more likely to go on and build a billion-dollar company next, and it's that kind of, and that's why when you look at the age, you can be a twenty-year-old who have built a bunch of stuff before, and it's your second or third company, and you may have failed before, or you may have started a small company before, and you may be twenty and you go and build a billion-dollar company. And I'm talking about Stripe, I'm talking about Bricks, and I've you know interviewed. The book has fifteen interviews with these founders of billion-dollar companies. Anywhere from, you know, Tony Fadell, founder of Nest, founder of Brex, to founder of GitHub, Zoom, uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, a lot of these founders I interviewed and each chapter comes with an interview. And when you look at it, age doesn't impact success, but your previous failures and successes does impact success. I was, uh, I talk about, you know, the founder of Calm, uh, which is a meditation app, a billion dollar meditation app. And he built this website and basically put the logos of different companies on that web page for $1 a logo. And he got $1 million through that super simple idea. Uh, anybody could have done it. And he did it when he was, you know, a kid. And it's those kind of characteristics of, you know, let me build something and sell online. I mean, let me make some money online. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a $500 million company. It might be, you know, a small project, even a nonprofit um, that makes you more likely to build a billion dollar company next. So the age myth wasn't that shocking to me. When I read that, I was like, okay, I can see that. There are a couple other ones in here, though, where I was sort of like, hmm, because I've given people advice that was to the contrary. So I want to get into the next one, which is one where I was like, oops. <laughs> I, literally, I had literally told somebody like two days ago, 
<laughs> that they should do this thing. And so I apologize. And that is the co-founder myth because you you write that you don't have to have a co-founder and that solo founders weren't less likely to build billion dollar companies, which is to me, I always think like, oh man, if you're on your own, it's just like, ugh. It's easier to quit. You have less support. You don't have that person to bounce ideas off with. But you found in your study that it is not necessarily the case. So talk about that co-founder myth. Correct. So I think, again, exactly the advice you talk about. There are, you know, there are places, there are incubator programs, there is accelerator programs that wouldn't let you in if you're solo. They would encourage, you know, you finding someone, somebody, you know, from somewhere and teaming it up. Um and obviously, there, there's a lot of good things about having co-founder, a co-founder, or multiple co-founders. You know, everybody can bring something to the table, but there's also problems that can come off out of you know. There, are, there are some companies that die just because of co-founder conflict, or that you know the founders didn't work, or somebody had a more dominant ego or did not. Anyways, when I looked at the data and compared the group of random companies that got venture funding and the group of billion-dollar companies there was no increased or decreased chance for any number of co-founders, which means if you're a solo founder, you're as likely to succeed as if you're two founders, three founders, four, five, six. Alibaba has 18 uh, people with the co-founder title. And one out of every five unicorn founded in the past 15 years is solo founded, which is shockingly high for kind of people giving that advice that, you know, you shouldn't start a company solo. Um, when you look look at and you kind of zoom into the data, you you see something though. Those solo founders, they were more likely that this was their second or third company. So they they may have started companies with other co-founders before. Those companies may have failed. Those companies may have succeeded. They know enough. They have enough connections that they can start this next company solo. And I'm not advising anyone to start a company solo. I'm advising people not to care about the norms that, you know, I need to be two co-founders or I need to be, you know, this many co-founders. If gather the best team that, you know, everybody brings something that you need to the table. And if that means you need six people, give every all the six people a co-founder title. If it's just you and you've started, you you don't have to somehow find another co-founder. Just go, go at it. Go start it. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos Fomo Sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. You know, it's interesting what you said. You, that was very provocative. Talking about these rules. It's like, what is so funny is we expect entrepreneurs to be flexible and resilient and think outside the box and try things that haven't been tried before. Yet we also put these like very strict rules. You must have a co-founder. You must have a technical co-founder. You must have worked in the industry on them 
which is just kind of weird to be trying to put all these boxes around people who we want to think outside of the box. So exactly, so, <laughs> it's an outliers game. You you can't create outliers by by putting them in a box or creating proxy rules. So. So don't put entrepreneurs in a box. Now, the other one, this is like now I, I sort of arrange these questions so that we get to like farther up the Patrick got it wrong <laughs> meter because, uh, you know, I can own that. This is one. And funny enough, we did an earlier show with Jim McKelvey, the founder of Square, and we were talking about this and he also um, agrees with you. So you guys, you're in good company uh, because he is <laughs> a very amazing man. Uh, and it's the expertise myth. You know, I, oh, when I talk to entrepreneurs, you know, I'll say like, well, you know, did you work in this industry? And, and if not, like, why are you here? And what you found is you, you can disrupt an industry without having necessarily sort of worked in that industry before, with the exception of the hard sciences and life sciences, you, you make that that clear exception. And you can do that as long as you acquire the right soft skills and connections. So I'm still not convinced, even if Jim says it, and by the way, whatever Jim says, I believe, but still, <laughs> can you please, Ali, can you please, I don't know, just tell me why that is true and try to, you know, I try to convince me because I'm still not there. Well, I mean, first thing, data tells you. Um, in, in data, we, we trust, right? So when you look Ouch. at the data... By the way, I just want to interview you. That, that is the best answer I've ever had on this entire podcast. <laughs> you just smack me down. And, and I like that. That's I respect that. So, okay, data, go there. I mean, Tell look, me. it, it's, it's not just you. Like, even when I look at my own previous me Medium articles that I've written, and when I look at the previous things I have told entrepreneurs, as advice, I find that I've I've given a lot of wrong advice. I've given a lot of personal anecdotes that are not supported by data, and I think that's the reason I, I pushed on, you know, writing this book. And you know, it's a labor of love, but I I hope this can push our industry ahead to you know forget these rules and let let people build, let people build big problems. We we have so many problems in the world, and we need the entrepreneurs to go at it and solve them without you know creating these proxy rules or who gets funding or not. Um, so the data tells you, you know, I think it's 70% of founders of billion dollar companies in tech, um, specifically in consumer and SaaS uh, side of things, did not come from that industry. It doesn't mean they did not have industry experience. They had 11 years of work experience on average, but didn't have to come from that same industry. Now, it doesn't mean if you're, 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 you are from the industry you're less likely to build a billion dollar company in that industry. It just says, you know, when you look at the data, it does not make a huge impact or it doesn't even make any impact on your ability to create a billion dollar company. What does is these soft skills, you know, you create these connections, you create these resources and you create these, you know, skills for management on how to raise money. You'll learn these stuff and Learning something specific about fintech or a regulation or something about insurance or whatever industry you're going after, if you have learned the right skills for learning fast, finding the right resources, networking, using your network, managing people, raising money, then you can go from industry to industry. And you know sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not. And I think that the biggest example that I have here is uh, founders of Flatiron Health that I interviewed in the book. And you know they they created they've created a bunch of companies in a bunch of different industries. Uh, they started with something that looked like uh, you know an Instacart uh, as their first kind of company, 
in, in college. But the one that worked out was an ad tech company. Uh, they created like an advertising technology company that Google acquired for $25 million, if I'm not wrong. And then they started a company in the healthcare industry, uh, Flatiron Health. That's a real world evidence, you know, data for oncology for cancer, and uh, which was a $2 billion acquisition. So what they learned from that first business was, you know, how to raise money, how to create a board, how to hire, how to manage people. And they used those connections and resources to go and learn whatever they could about cancer, whatever they could about healthcare IT, and whatever they could about these people and, you know, hired the right people and created the right, you know, company. So learning specific things about the industry you're going after, that's, that's not easy, but that's easier than learning these kind of soft skills for how to manage people, how to find connections, and building building the, that kind of Rolodex and those resources that you need to create a successful company. You know, I think when, when, when we think about entrepreneurship, uh, the way that it's portrayed in culture, in business culture, it's like there are these superhuman people who do these things that are truly impossible. And what we forget is... And by the way, I've always thought that. And I'm even, you know, I have good friends who are entrepreneurs. It's like, oh my God, how do they do this thing? But what we forget is like, it's a job. You learn how to do something. There's a pattern recognition bit. You've messed up before. You learn how to fix it. And like anything in life, whether it's cooking a cake to, you know, training for a marathon to giving advice to people. It's like you learn as you go along and you become more competent. And then as you do, you can expand into areas where maybe you weren't operating before. So that all makes a lot of sense now that you've explained it. And I will give different advice in the future. So now that we've corrected everybody's sort of misconceptions and all the things that I had wrong, I'd love to just take a minute. You know, we have people who are listening to the show who are entrepreneurs or who want to be entrepreneurs and they're going to be pitching. Let's let's imagine they've got a business idea. They're working on that deck. They're going to meet a VC firm or an angel investor. What is your advice to entrepreneurs about pitching their company and having, you know, thought through the elements of a business? What are the most important things to you? So this is also another contrarian thing that I talk about in the book. The pitch doesn't matter. I have seen companies raise $5 million without a single slide deck. And they weren't even repeat entrepreneurs. And I've seen people struggle to raise $200,000 with the best pitch deck, with the most practice, you know, storyline, things that make perfect sense, the follow-up, the introduction, everything's perfect. They fail to raise. And you know, what's what's different? Substance. If you're, if you're pitching to the right investors, they are smart. They're not, you may, you may be successful in the first meeting if you have a super polished deck and you've thought about everything and you, you know, the answer to everything. But in order for you to get money in the bank, your business actually needs to have substance. And that substance is team and is traction. So my advice is actually, I think that it's, it's a quote from Paul Graham that says, you know, entrepreneurs, when, when they try to pitch, it's like, you know, trying to, pull something in the wrong way and they hurt their back. And that's because instead of working on actually their business, they're working on the pitch for their business. So spend your time, close that extra customer. Like having having that 50K more or 10K, whatever, that extra customer, that, that's going to go along a much longer way than, you know, your deck that may have, you know, a 5% better design or a 5% better story. So focus on that. And your deck, I think you need to, for you to succeed, you need to be thoughtful. So take that investment pitching process 
as a time for you to think very deeply about your business in the future and you know how I am going to get distribution right, how I'm get, going to get hiring right. You need to have thought about your own business more than anyone have ever thought about that specific business and for you to know more about that and know more people in that area than anyone else. If you're thoughtful about what you're doing and if you're resourceful in the area that you're going after, the investor, if you're pitching the right investors, they would understand you know and they will trust that you know and it doesn't matter if you have a 10-page slide deck or 5 or 20 or if it's very well-designed or mediocre, I think you will get funding. All right, everybody. Substance over flash pretty good advice. The book is Super Founders. The website is superfoundersbook.com where you can pick up the book and it's basically available everywhere where books are sold, including Amazon, of course. Ali Tamaseb, thanks so much for being here. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMO Sapiens.com. FOMO.